please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And um, it only seemed fitting that we would end here um, for this very, very brief series, if you can call it that. Started with uh, chapter 1 and the first nine verses. And I'm not going to end at the very ending, although it's an amazing passage if you read all the way to the very end. But uh, my focus this morning, our focus this morning will be just on verses uh, 5 through seven. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Let's read together. Uh, verse five, chapter five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Please be seated. Have you ever heard of, um, and I just came upon this recently, have you heard of the humble brag? Some of you know what I'm talking about if you visited ESPN. Have you heard of the humble brag? Um, Harris Whittles, I believe that's his name, uh, pronouncing it correctly, sir, is a, a writer for Parks and Recreation. I don't know if you watch that show or not, but he's a writer on there. And uh, his description of a humble brag, he came up with this thing, is, is this, a type of bragging which masks the brag in a faux humble guise. The false humility allows the offender to boast their achievements without any sense of shame or guilt. Humble bragging is very commonly used in our society, and for some reason, Twitter seems to be the perfect forum for people to do it. So, about a year ago, instead of just silently griping about it to myself, I gave it a name, Humble Brag, and started an account on Twitter on which I retweet Twitter's most fl flagrant humble braggers. Alright? Here we go. So, I showed this to my wife, and we were just like dying i think 30 minutes just going through all these if you go on the actual twitter account it's just it's it's pretty crazy i wanted to give you a few examples all right so um this one is so i'll read you i'll read you a few all right just follow along this is this is this guy's tweet okay every single time i go to the gym someone asks me what position i play i don't play football stop asking all right that was his tweet all right so the point is, really, right? Like, stop asking because I'm so ripped and awesome looking, right? I'm not. Just, just please, just leave me alone. Here's one. And this one is from the guy that uh, Harris Whittle says is his all-time favorite um, humble bragger. This is his tweet. I just realized I've only showered in one of my five showers since I moved in here. This must change. Hashtag problems. All right. <clears throat> Five shower. The the last three come from this uh, <laughs> reality star. Okay, just follow along. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, here he goes. It's about her car. Okay, I hate my Lambo, Lamborghini. I hate my Lambo. Police is always pulling me over just because it's a Lambo. So they always think I'm speeding, but I'm not. Then they let me go. This is her second tweet right after this. Man, this is so unfair. Why did the Lambo dealership not tell me I'd get pulled over at least once a week in this car? Time for a Corolla. LOL. 
sorry for you who own Corollas. How does that make you feel if you own a Corolla, right? <laughs> this is the third one. This is, I mean, how many times has this woman been pulled over? I think they just want to talk to me. Ugh. Okay, I'm done with this Lambo. I'm buying a 1988 brown Toyota Corolla. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. There are countless others like this. Kind of the passive-aggressive uh, uh, um, boasting where you're trying to deflect the boast, but at the same time, you're really indulging in it anyway. We laugh, but I think... As I read these things, after I got over the laughter, a little bit of a horror set in because I realized, gosh, I do this a lot. <laughs> I do this more than I want to, whether in, you know, privately with my wife even or in front of you guys or in front of my friends. I think we want to cover up how much we see of ourselves when we read something like this. And when I, what, I, what I thought about when I came across this is – that we cannot get away from pride, right? It is so pervasive. It's so ingrained in us. I mean, think about it. In the very moment that you are trying to be humble, we, we can't help but be actually proud of being humble, right? And that tells us how serious the problem of pride and humility, the problem of pride really is, and how, how serious of an issue this is. That, that, that really we are in trouble, and this is a disease that has infested us from head all the way to toe, right? And to help us, we go to these verses. To help us get a better handle on what pride and humility are all about, what it means to truly be humble, um, it's, it's something entirely different from, from, from these tweets and from, in many ways from the ways that we think about humility, and we're going to get answers to that in these three verses. And there are really just three things we learn about humility in the Christian life from these verses. Number one is that number one is that we must humble ourselves. Number two is how we should humble ourselves. And thirdly is why we can humble ourselves. That we must humble ourselves, how we should humble ourselves, and why. All right, why we can humble ourselves in the way that Peter describes it. Point number one. First, that you should humble yourself. That you should humble yourself, right? I mean, pride, pride is the fountainhead of all the other sins, right? It's the, it's the source. Right? You want to trace back every sin, and in some way, shape, or form, it boils down to a pride, to, to this idolatry of self, right? It's the, it's the first sin, the first sin, if you will, the sin that you're always going to be butting up your head against when you're fighting all your other sins, that's how it works, right? It's the cardinal sin. And it can be described in so many different ways because it's such a, you know, it, it has so many different dimensions, right? It, it, because it is the, the, the foundational one, it, it, it takes so many different forms. It takes the form of self-boast, self-glorying, um, taking credit for things that you shouldn't. It's an excessive concern with yourself, right? How you look how you come off to others, how you feel, what others think about you and what you said and what you did or what you didn't do and what you didn't say. It's also in that sense of superiority toward other people, right? When we believe that we're in some area a standard of excellence, right? In some area, whether it's in work or ministry or family, and you feel contempt, right? You look down on anyone who falls short of your excellence, your glory. It's 
self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-dependence, all of those words where you don't want God, you don't need God. And maybe for many of us, it's sometimes where we don't even sense that we need God, right? The very, the need to even need God is gone. It's just a complete absence, a complete vacuum, right? C.S. Lewis said this in his chapter on this in Mere Christianity, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Complete anti-God state of mind. And so it's no surprise that when you take a look at verse 5, right, at the end of it, it's a quote from Proverbs 3, 34. It's also in James 4, 6. God opposes. He is absolutely arrayed against, set against pride. But to the humble, he gives grace. He continually gives grace. He's continually set against the proud, and he continually gives grace to the humble. Now, his opposition to pride can come in a lot of different forms, but I want to look at the other half, again, uh, the, the, the second half of that, that quote to, to kind of see the real damage that pride brings into our lives, right? And the real damage that comes from pride is that pride separates you from God's grace. It separates you from experiencing God's grace, right? It separates you from experiencing God's grace. Now, how, how does that happen? What, in, what, in what way does that happen? What are we talking about? Well, look at the context for some, for some clues. Verses 1 to 4, Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the church in a certain way. Do it this way, don't do it that way, all right? Willingly, right? Not for, um, not for shameful gain, not for money, right? But eagerly, not, not domineering those over, your char- over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, right? Beginning of verse 5, what we read, that he exhorts younger men then, elders, shepherd in this way, but younger men, submit, place yourself under the elders, and then the middle of verse 5, right? All of you, all of you, right? Clothe yourselves with humility, the entire church. Now remember, Peter's audience is suffering, right? They're going through social persecution for their faith in Christ. And what happens with any trial, with any pressure, not just persecution, but anything that you're going through right now, right? Is that it easily causes interpersonal conflicts, right? If you're stressed about something, about your your child's schedule not being right, about something at work, about a deadline, about something in ministry not going, a relationship, whatever it might be, any kind of pressure from the outside causes these internal, internal fights right, within your family and within the family of God. And that is really what Peter is warning them against. Because that's the first place. The first place you take out your frustrations on when there's external pressures is unfortunately on those whom you love. And I think too often, right, men, husbands particularly, we can attest to this, where if you've had a rough day, if you had a rough patch, it's a a tough season in your life, and you come home and you're on edge and you just kind of want to be, you want to be placated, right? You want to be taken care of. You want the spa treatment, right? And you cause your wives and your children to walk on eggshells around, around us, right? We're curt with them, 
you know, we don't want to share. We kind of, men's tendency is to kind of hole up within themselves. Right? And so pressure without on the outside builds up pressure within, and that pressure explodes out. And to who? To, to the people that we know we can get away with it, right? To our family members. And so Peter knows this tendency, this unfortunate, really sad tendency of trials aggravating these kinds of conflicts, relational conflicts, elders, younger men, younger men, elders, everyone in the church, right? And that's Peter's targeting everyone, right? Elders, younger men, children and parents and parents to their children, siblings to one another, because in trials, who do you look out for? You look out for number one, right? We tend to become very, very self-focused when the pressure is on. We get in conflicts easier. We stop listening to people that we should be listening to. We start to hold grudges a little bit longer than we would. We'll trample on people. We'll, We'll do whatever we can to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel better, to, to escape, to escape that, that trial. And this is all pride, right? This excessive self-concern, this excessive inordinate attention to yourself, this elevation of yourself at all costs is pride. And it separates us from experiencing God's grace here, relationally, right? Because as pressures mount, we, we, we isolate, we separate, we, we get it. We, we stand at odds with each other. We, we look for things to pick on. Everything sets us off. We don't want to be bothered. We don't, you know, we start comparing ourselves to others. We get competitive. All these breakdowns start to happen in relationships. But as we humble ourselves before each other, not just in private, in our, you know, in our, in our individual prayers, but before, in the face of each other, what happens is God, God's grace comes through, right? It absolutely breaks through and and, and what starts to happen is when I humble myself, God's grace is released to restore a broken relationship, right? Where I'm able to absorb pain and truly forgive and be reconciled and that relationship is restored and vice versa, that other person does likewise, right? Where I'm not nursing my wounds and counting all the times that you hurt me, so I'm going to get back at you X amount of times or you have to pay for it before I forgive you and all those kinds of things, right? So as we humble ourselves... What ends up happening is, right, what ends up actually happening is that the grace for service, right, purely for the sake of the other person, no strings attached, that, the grace to do that comes, right? The grace to do that kind of service comes, Christ-like service. Also, on the kind of the, the other end, receiving and self-humbling allows my heart to be ministered to and, and, and receive grace, Right? As I humble myself, what happens? I listen a little bit better. My heart is a little bit more open to you. I receive counseling a little bit better, a little bit easier. I'm more teachable. My heart is willing to be shepherded. I'm able to be corrected without chafing under it and getting angry about it and defending myself. And all these things I wouldn't otherwise do because in my pride, I would never die to myself that much. All right? Have you ever said that like to that person? I don't have to listen to that person. Right? That person has hurt me, offended me, or that person is beneath me. Right? Have you ever thought that? That person doesn't, you know, doesn't hold a candle to my godliness so, and my service in the church and my, you know, look at all my medals I'm carrying around for Christ. Why should I humble myself before that person? He should humble himself before me. Right? But if, if I'm able to do the right thing, it, that just 
That's grace. Grace breaks through. Through self-humbling, grace pours out. You know that part in James 1 where James says that God is a generous giver. He's not a stingy giver, right? That when it rains with God, right, it pours. It pours. And that, that, that deluge of grace floods into our lives personally, and then it spreads like wildfire to the whole church. And that's something we need to pray for, is that kind of grace, the kind of grace that Peter is alluding to here, where if that grace comes, that deep fellowship happens across life stages, right? So it's not like marrieds against singles, singles against marrieds, marrieds with kids against marrieds without kids, and seniors to youngers and, you know, all that stuff, right? Across life stages, across races, across ethnicities, right? And across different family backgrounds and cultures where we're truly able to die to ourselves and love each other just for the sake of the other person. What happens then, right? What happens? External pressures are still there. They don't go away. They didn't go away for the audience of First Peter. Pressures are still there. Circumstances are still as they are. And people yet come into the church and they see that Christianity is entirely different from other religions. Right? There's this evangelistic gravity and pull that the church should have and has when this kind of self-humbling happens. Right? Not because we're, we're better, we have better programs, we're smarter, we're more moral than other people, we're more righteous. God only knows we're not, right? But, right, because we are a grace-shattered people, right, humbling ourselves before one another and before God in ways that, would, that it just doesn't make sense to the world, right? Across life stage lines, race lines, ethnicity lines, hard and fast lines that the world has, we, socioeconomic lines, e- education lines, we cross those lines. And, and that kind of self-humbling is unimaginable apart from a supernatural work of God's grace. Right. Now, when we get to the command itself, right? After God opposing the proud, but giving grace to the humble, Peter just says, humble yourselves, therefore, in light of this, humble yourselves, right? In light of, in light of God's opposition to pride and his just absolute fatherly love and willingness to pour out grace in your lives, if you would humble yourselves, not just in abstract, but before one another, and especially when there are trials and pressures, he says, humble yourselves in light of that. And literally, that means do lowly-mindedness. Do lowly-mindedness. It just, you know, it, I, heard, I heard it this week. It just, another pastor, he explained it this way. It just means just be who you are in the presence of God, nothing more, nothing less. Just be who you are, nothing more, nothing less. Strip to the core of who you really are. And as you do that, what does Peter say? Under, humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, right? Under the mighty hand of God, all in one motion. And this phrase, you might be familiar, familiar with it. It's used a lot in the Old Testament, and it's primarily used for uh, God's hand of del- power in delivering Israel from, from Egypt in the Exodus. It's used there quite a bit, and in reference to that. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a synonym of God's power his protection, his deliverance, his rescue, his power for your behalf to get you out of a jam, if you will. 
And if we humble ourselves and we think, okay, I'm humbling myself, but it's under God's mighty hand, what in the world does that have to do with conflicts, my conflicts, my hurts, my particular set of distresses? But don't you see, it means absolutely everything. Because if we humble ourselves and we think it's under his mighty hand, right, under his mighty hand, then look, this is what we say to ourselves. So this is the interior monologue that we ought to have. I don't know why this is happening, but I know that whatever you, God, let through your covering hand of protection, it has to be for my good. Why? Because you have the mighty hand, you're God, and you're allowing it. You're my redeemer, right? You're my rescuer. You're my father. So whatever sort of arrows get past the shield, it's not punishment, And it's not a mistake on his part. Oop, he just forgot to cover you, right? No, it's none of those things. They are piercings that are supposed to go deep into the heart of my pride. Make me really see who he is and really see who I am and my relationship to him. A humble Christian can say to God then with John Newton, what you will, when you will, how you will. No conditions, no strings attached. You see, When we're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, what it means is, what this humility means is that we're not resisting God's ways. We're not resisting God's timing. It believes, pure and simple, in God's control of our circumstances, and it believes in God's control of the timetable, of the schedule of whatever it is that we're going through. If we're humble, if we're humbling ourselves, We believe that God's mighty hand covers me better from any problems in life, any of the storms of life, than the kind of like, you know, uh, raggedy um, makeshift tents that we set up with our career, with our money, with our health and beauty, with our strength, with our security or our status. Pride believes in those things. You know why? Because I did it. I can kind of, you know, hold things together, right? It's it's something that I can get together, that I can amass by my power. And pride says these things are are better fit to save me and comfort me and get me through the storm than God's mighty hand. But humility says with Christ, right? When Christ had every reason to bail out, every right to bail out, humility says with him, I entrust myself, body and soul, to your mighty hand. Come what may. Come what may. Jonathan Edwards, in his um, collection of sermons called Charity and Its Fruits, it's on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. He says this about Christian humility. Edwards says, True Christian humility of heart tends to make persons resigned to the will of God, right? patient and submissive to his holy hand under, aff- under afflictions, full of awful reverence, that's full of awe type of reverence towards the deity, ready to treat divine things with great respect and of a meek behavior towards men, respectful towards superiors, gentle, easy to be entreated, not self-willed, not envious, but contented with his own condition of a peaceable and quiet spirit, not disposed bitterly to resent injuries, but apt to forgive, quick to forgive. When we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, the rest of that verse, verse 6, teaches us what? That God uses that to prepare us, what? 
what is he preparing through our humility? What's the, what's the, what's the end? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. He may exalt you. It's not just he's humbling you and just learn some humility and it's a good lesson to learn and that's it. It'll just help you in life and you'll get by better and you'll be a better person and you'll be a nicer person. You'll be easier to hang out with. And humble people usually are easier to hang out with, right? That's not it, right? He has a much more glorious purpose and aim in mind, right? He says basically that God is going to reverse your fortunes. Any injustice, any offense, anything kind of left not taken care of by God, right? God will reverse. And particularly for these Christians, right? Persecuted Christians, suffering for their faith. That would have made an amazing, I think, indelible mark on their souls as they're, as they're trying to endure and hold fast in the midst of the storm. But that applies to all of you. That applies to me. That applies to all of us. Whether you're suffering for the faith or suffering in general as a Christian. And anyway, if you're a Christian, sooner or later you're going to suffer anyway, right? You're going to suffer for your faith one way or another. You may not be literally persecuted, but you will, right? If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer, it says. And so Paul, uh, so Peter is saying that every suffering, every trial, every, every conflict, every problem here and now in this life is a prelude to the future glory, right? At that time, then, right, off into the future, we will see. But I think Peter is saying it, you know, right now, catch it by faith. See it now that God's timing, man, it couldn't have been better. It couldn't have been better. And his control of the circumstances was picture perfect. I couldn't see his hand in it, but I, by faith, not knowing where I was going to go on this journey, by faith, I placed myself under his mighty hand. That's faith. Not knowing everything in advance, but knowing, God, you're trustworthy. I place myself there. And the rest is up to you. I will follow. Just like Abraham, right? When he left Ur, he didn't know where he was going, right? God didn't give him a, God didn't give him a GPS, right? He just had to go. And that was faith. The thing is, we will see then. We will see then that if we had it our way right now in our pride, we would have botched up this whole thing. <laughs> we, would have, we would have sunk ourselves. So Peter is saying, let's humble ourselves now, right? Let's humble ourselves now. Even though it's impossible, even though it's more difficult than you can imagine, let's humble ourselves now. Remember, all the stuff that's going on right now around you. And he's, he's telling people who, who, who are going to be in a few years, they're going to be burned at the stake. They're going to be fed to lions. And he's telling them, and he is telling us, all the stuff going around us, the waves, right? Like Peter, think about Peter. Remember, he got out of the boat and it was... You know, he's, and then what did he do? He took his eyes off Christ and he, he, looked at the, he looked at the waves. He looked at the, you know, just, just the, the Sea of Galilee all around him. And fear came in and he, 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 started, he started falling. Right? But unlike Peter, if we're able to, just for a moment, not look at the waves, not feel the wind, right? Not take into consideration just the Sea of Galilee and just look at that and be consumed with our circumstances, Right? If we would just look at him and remember all of that stuff, if it's a really bad storm, that's going on under his watch. It's not like he's taking a vacation. It's not like he's clocking out nine to five and then he rests. It's going on in, on his watch right now under his mighty hand. And to the degree that you and I believe that, we'll be able to humble ourselves. 
And on the blessed day that he set apart for you and me, what does he say? He will lift you up. He will exalt you. You'll be glorious princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. Now, that's, that you must humble yourself. Now, how can you humble yourself? Very simple. Maybe too simple, but that's our pride. <laughs> very, very simple. And the ESV translation is beautiful because they get it right. Now, look at verse 6 says, humble yourselves, and then go all the way to just the beginning of verse 7. So how do I do it? Casting all your anxieties on him. Stop right there. That's it. How do I humble myself? By casting all your cares on him. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Known to God. This is true humility, Peter says. You know, where you are just crying out to God in desperation. Lord, help. Shortest prayer, right? Help. Even shorter than Lord, help. All right? This is true humility. And when I was thinking about this, I thought, gosh, it is too simple. It is so simple. I feel like I had to do something else. I had to like, you know, make it something else, like come up with something else, something more novel for myself to to attain to. And God was saying, dummy, just humble yourself. Even when you're trying to outthink me, just humble yourself, okay? And I realized, you know what, gosh, there's a lot of counterfeit humility out there. A lot of counterfeit humility. And Christians, especially those of us who've been around and know the Christianese and know how to know how to do it really well, and, you know, that's the scary thing is pastors know how to do it better than other people, is... um. We have been very guilty of these things, all right? And here are a few examples of counterfeit humility. Self-deprecation is counterfeit humility. Self-deprecation, you know, putting yourself down all the time. Like, this is like um, Eeyore humility. Like, oh, well, you know, I stink, you know, that's just my lot in life. You know, and just kind of go around, like, always, like, putting yourself down. So why? So other people can come up and be like, oh, it's okay, you're great, right? There's self-loathing, which is the next step down, the next level, self-loathing. So this is where, like, you know, good and good intentions, you know, sometimes misguided by maybe not being shepherded about this. But where you're like, I'm such a worm. I'm so bad. I'm so sinful. I'm so unworthy. I'm a good-for-nothing loser. Why did God even save me? You know, and what do other people say? Wow. You know, that guy? Really sensitive to sin really sensitive and inside what are you thinking yes you know you got a little taste of the glory right oh he's so sensitive to the to the spirits leading in his life like did you really mean that right that's humble bragging right look there's no place for that in christ right yeah you are a worm i am a worm we're scum but guess what we're redeemed scum so take that to the bank all right (laughs) number three is this incessant refusal to to acknowledge that you've contributed anything to Christ. Oh, no, not me, not me. I didn't do anything. If someone tries to like say, hey, thanks for that, or great job, you're like, no, 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 not me. I just point to Christ. It wasn't me. And then what do people say? Man, that guy, he's so humble, never takes credit for anything. I'd love working with that guy, you know? You know, that wasn't me. I, I'm just a puppet in God's hands. And whatever he wants, if he wants me to move this way, I move that way. He wants me to move this way. I didn't do anything. There was as if there was no volition involved. You were just this, you know, blind, senseless tool that God was doing this with. You know, that doesn't come from the Bible. I don't know where Paul actually takes credit, doesn't he? Doesn't he? I, I strive harder than all the other apostles, but not I, but the grace of God in me. So he's taking credit, but at the same time, he's giving glory to God. It's both. 
And fourthly, not letting others serve you. This is a very, very common one. So like, I always have to be serving you. I always have to be picking up the trash. I always have to be putting this away or doing that or carrying your this or I can never just stop and be served. I always have to be on the move, bowing the knee, washing your feet, right? You certainly can't let anyone else take away your trash. Oh, no, 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 let me. And you're always, 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 always in that mode, right? Because I'm trying to be like Christ every minute of the day, nonstop, 24-7, 365, right? All right. Paul says this about this, right? Though these have the form of godliness, they deny the power thereof. They look like humility. They sound like humility. They must be humility. Dead wrong. Right? Because the whole time we're saying, I'm not worthy, and we're pushing the spotlight away from us, we're still talking about and thinking about ourselves. When real humility very, very casually points away from ourselves, right? Without any theatrics, right? Without any, <laughs> it's just very, like, Lewis says this in that chapter. He says, if you meet a humble man, you won't, you won't think he's humble. Right? You won't think he's proud, but you won't think he's humble. You'll just be like, wow, this is a good guy. He's a nice guy. That's all you'll say. Decent guy, asks questions, listens pretty good, pretty well, and uh, just, you know, just goes about his business and seems to genuinely care for me. He doesn't like go out of his way to show like I really care for you or I'm really just a naturally decent fellow. That's what you'll see when you meet a humble person. See, unlike these counterfeits, real humility is rooted in a clear recognition of who I am in Christ. All those counterfeits, they take one extreme too, you know, they go too far, right? They're not balanced. See, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm a worm. Of course. But yes, absolutely yes, I'm also justified in Christ. 100%, right? God will lift me up. And I'm wholly a child of his grace. No more, no less, all right? And when you see yourself clearly as a product of that grace, that pure grace, right? nothing I brought to the table, then I will cast all my anxieties on him. Right? If you go too far, you're not going to really be casting cares. You're going to be holding those cares in. You're going to be saying, you're going to be saying uh, you're you're really anxious and you know, sort of half-heartedly praying to God, but still taking care of it yourself. The word for cast is is just the word for throw, to launch. Right? And it's used one other time. Luke 19.35, uh, in the triumphal entry, when the disciples throw their cloaks on the donkey that Jesus is going to ride. And that's just, that's the idea. Just throw it at him, right? And the idea here beyond that, the nuance is to do it forcefully, to do it desperately. Peter wants to drill into our hearts. Look, God doesn't want you to jump through hoops to come to him. He wants you to come boldly claiming the righteous blood of Christ, Hebrews 4:14 4, to 16. Boldly, right? Without any shame, without any guilt. It's, uh, you remember The Last Samurai? You know that scene? They do it twice with the emperor. Remember what they say, what the, what the British guy who's a translator tells him? Like, you're never to turn your back on him. So you always walk like this. But then you have to go like this, eyes averted, come forward slowly, right? And speak only when spoken to. Right? If that were the case with us and God, Peter would never use the word cast because that is a disrespectful word. Just throw it at him. Right? No, we must present it to him very carefully and package it. That's, that's not what he wants. And if our access to God were like that with an emperor, Peter wouldn't say all of our anxieties. Notice, all. Very simple idea. Every single one. Not See, if you come to an emperor, you have to bring the best anxieties. 
You have to bring the number one anxiety. You can't bring like number 18 on the list. And you can't bring 18 anyway. You have to only bring one, maybe two, right? And he has to get, grant you an introduction. And you have to go through all these intermediaries, uh, intermediaries and all these steps. He says every single one, not just the important ones that you think are worthy of God's attention, but all the way down the list to the simple ones of losing your keys, my car won't start, where's my child's toy, you know, the simplest things, the simplest things. Do we throw those cares on him too? Simple question. I had to ask myself that question repeatedly. Do I actually throw those cares onto him or am I just holding on to those things and saying, God, like I can take care of 50% of my life and you take care of the other half, right? But is that really true? Can we really do that, right? Are we trusting in ourselves? Are we, are we just spinning pl- all these different plates, right? saying we can handle it, right? Really? Maybe I haven't experienced suffering yet. Maybe I haven't experienced real suffering or deep conflict yet, but it's coming, right? Let's be honest. In marriage, right? Can you handle marriage? Now that you're married, some of you, right, those of you who have been married, two years after the honeymoon stage, right? Two years, three years, you, you can handle it. Now, do you feel like, wow, I'm so confident I can just handle my wife and handle my kids and handle life, Right? Can you handle serious illness of your parents, of yourself, of your friends? Can you handle conflicts that tear families apart and that has been going on for generations? Financial distress, can you handle that? Can I handle that? Let's be honest with ourselves, right? Look, you know, we're not just spinning all these plates, right? To borrow a phrase, we're spinning plates in a glass house. And all the self-confidence in the world cannot stop it all from coming crashing down at some point. It's going to happen. It's just, it's God is just being extra gracious to you. It's going to happen. That's how weak we are. Verse 7 really teaches us that when you and I are consumed with our anxieties, it means we actually think we can take care of life by ourselves. That's what it means. When we're anxious, we believe we're still in control, right? Otherwise, why would you be anxious? What are you anxious about, right? If God, if I really believe God has a mighty hand, is caring for everything, Why would I be anxious unless I think somehow I have some stake in this, some say in this really, right? Think this out, right? I think I am in control. Trial X happens in my life. What happens? I have this sense of losing control. I think about ways out of this. I think about strategies and solutions to get out of this. Wow, I think about, man, I cannot control this. And then I feel more a loss of control and I am not happy. I am afraid, I am insecure, I am anxious, right? That's the, that's the steps. When in fact, God is saying, Peter is saying, you are never in control. Control is an illusion. It's an illusion. You and I don't have control. But the thing is, we have such control in all of like work life and everything else and with all our technology and with science and medical advancements, we believe that we have control, but we really don't, right? But God does and he always will be in control. Here's the equation, all right? Pride equals anxiety of the loss of control of your life when problems arise. That's pride. Pride equals anxiety over the loss of control of your life. But humility is releasing your cares to God because you realize you don't have control over problems. You don't have control, right? So are you humble enough to be carefree, to be really carefree? These worries and these anxieties are all great weights and they are, they're crushing us, 
right? If you're carrying them, they're crushing you. If you're honest, they are. They're not, we're not that strong. We're not that smart. We need help. And Jesus came to carry our weights. He carried the greatest weight of all on the cross. And all these other things going on are just lesser forms of that greater weight, right? Right? That's what it is. And so what Peter is saying is pray your hearts out. Better yet, pray your troubles out of your hands into his mighty hand. Look to him daily, regularly. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, pester him with his promises, bombard him. This is what it means to cast all your cares on him. Spurgeon compiled a devotional for Christians, and he called it the checkbook of the bank of faith. It's all of these promises in the Bible for believers, the checkbook of the bank of faith. So his point was like, yeah, go ahead, you know, cut that check, you know, and cut another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another. Keep cutting that check. Never bounces. Heaven's funds will never dry up for you and me. Why? Why? Point number three. The end of that verse. Because he cares for you. Right? Why should you humble yourself in this way? How can you even start doing that? Once you really believe that he cares for you in your desperation, you cry out to him. The reason you're crying out to him is because you've come to an end of yourself and you throw yourself at his mercy and you say, Lord, I have messed it up on my own. I'm trying to carry the world on my shoulders and uh, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I know it's not easy doing this because like when you've been offended, let's say relational conflicts, when you've been gossiped about, when you've been betrayed, you've been, you've been disrespected, you've been neglected, right? It's hard to believe that he cares for you, especially when it's this, these interpersonal hurts. But let me try to help you here. And let me, let me just bring Jesus's teaching on the father's care, right? In the same contexts of anxiety and trust, Matthew 10, 29 to 31, this, this famous passage, right? Jesus says that the, the father has numbered every hair on your head. Every hair on your head. He says, you know the sparrows? Two are sold for a penny, and yet God cares for them, right? Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Sermon on the Mount, your heavenly father feeds the birds. What do they do to deserve it? Nothing. They don't do anything. They just fly around, and they make a mess on your car, and somehow they find food and they get by and they proliferate and they do okay for pigeons, right? They don't do anything, but your father feeds them. What about the lilies of the field, plants? You see wildflowers out in the desert, beautiful blooms, right? What do they do? They don't do nothing. They just sit there, right? They just plant it in soil. They didn't put themselves there and they get arrayed, he says, in all these beautiful colors, more glorious than Solomon's robes. They don't do anything, but your father gives them such beauty. Matthew 5:45 God reigns both on the just and the unjust. He provides for every one of his creatures, Psalm 65, 9 to 13. Sparrows, pigeons, right? Plants, people who reject the gospel. <sighs> he cares for all, all of them. So the the thing is, how much more does he care for you? Care for me, children of God. I think so much of our anxiety comes from the fact that we don't believe that someone actually has our back. And so we feel like we have to take care of ourselves. Nobody's got my back. I got my own back, right? But this, this kind of self-protectionism, right? It, it just, it fills you with anxiety, first of all, and then it separates you from your neighbors. It, it, it keeps my heart from going out to minister to people and to serve them and to love them. 
right? To give and to listen and to encourage and to bless. And what ends up happening is we become spiritual vampires when we try to protect ourselves and take care of things ourselves. We just take and we take and we take and we take. But God says we were made for good works. We were made for selfless deeds that benefit others even when it saps us. In fact, one way you know that you're doing a good deed is that it does draw power out of you. Yeah, that, that is a truly selfless deed. So if I know that God cares for me personally, personally, then I will all the more cast my cares on him and stop worrying about myself. Stop being consumed about, what about me, <laughs> right? I won't really care about myself. Not in sort of a fa- false humility, oh, I don't really care about myself, but really, like, I don't care about myself, right? Not that you're not taking care of yourself, but you're like, I'm not so consumed with myself that I always have to be thinking about me. And you know what we get? We get freedom. That's what happens. Humility brings with it amazing freedom. You get freed up from yourself because that's, that's the number one preoccupation that we have. And we get freed to do what we were made to do. That is, again, to serve others for their sake, nothing in return, just for their sake, because you love them because you've been touched by the love of Christ. Right? We don't want any return on our investment. It's just investment. Our hearts get broken. Our sufferings go untouched. That's fine. I don't care about myself. I don't have to care about myself. He cares for me. He cares for me. See, the right conception of God changes your whole life, right? And it helps you become humble. It changes your heart. It changes how you think about your life, how you think about your future, how you think about other people. It really makes you a human being, finally. <laughs> makes me a real person and not just this vampire just taking and taking and taking. Right? Our, our, our lives are so cluttered with our own expectations and our own preferences and our own ambitions and our own desires and our own dreams. And when any one of those things gets thwarted, anxiety level just goes out through the roof. But if we stop for a moment, realize, wait a minute, what are we living for? This is not in my control anyway. And plug our hearts into this, that God cares for me. Then what happens is you'll want to, I'll want to die to myself. And then I get freedom. I get freedom from myself. Finally, at last, I get freedom from myself, right? Because I'm so secure in my relationship with him, right? I'm so secure in my relationship with him that I can, I can in the midst of suffering, right? In the thick of it, not, out, not after things are easy. You know, if, you, if I say, oh, I'll serve after things are easy, you know what's going to happen? I'm never going to serve. I'm never going to serve, right? By the way, things never get easy, whatever that means, right? Things never get easy. But I'm so secure in my relationship with him, right? I believe this truth. He cares for me. I can cross streets, I can cross borders, I can cross oceans to love others. And I don't care about the cost to myself, right? Let me just close with this. You know, when we, when we really come to grips with that truth, when we recognize, you know what, I don't have to care for myself. He really cares for me. And my hand... And my reach is very short. My hand is very weak. His is mighty. I'm totally dependent on God. What was I thinking? How could I think that I could deal with this on my own? Right? And God changes 
when we recognize that, when we see that, God changes the way we view and treat others. I think that's the really the maybe the best benefit of all. Not that not just that our relationship with God changes, of course it does, but humility, self-humbling changes this dynamic right here. Right? And especially, think about this, right? Those that we tend to despise, those that we don't get along with, those that are what you know, in our definition at least, in our pride-filled definition, unlovely, our enemies we start to treat them with utmost respect and compassion and dignity. You know why? Not just because that they're, they're made in the image of God, right? But they are. But because we get this new self-awareness. You know what? I am, I'm nothing. I'm nothing but a handiwork of God's sovereign grace. That's all I am, right? I have, I, I have been blessed by his sovereign one-way love. And that's the only reason I am what I am. That's the only reason that I'm here. That's the only reason that I know any of these things that I do, right? And since we've been given this kind of love, how much more should we give it to someone else? That's, that's, the, that's the gospel working, right? And so, just like Peter says, let us all humble ourselves because Jesus did it for us at infinite cost to himself, in benefit to us. Look, the, the benefits of this are eternal because there's a church family out here that we are called to bless as we humble ourselves before one another. There's a, beyond that, there's a world out there. The Czech team is going to see that world. There's a world out there at your workplace. There's a world out there with your families. There's a world out there outside of the park, at the mall, wherever. There's a world out there and God wants us to use us for so much more than we can dream and, so much, and, to, and to do so much more than we can imagine. Let's humble ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you pleading the blood of Christ. We don't want to come with any sort of false humility. Lord, we know we don't deserve it. But at the same time, Lord, you gave us your grace. You promised that you care for us and you have cared for us. And you have a mighty hand to do that work. So our confidence and our trust is in you. We are secure in you and we are thankful for that, Lord. Because on our own, we would be so filled with anxiety, so filled with our pride, thinking that we can take care of things on our own when we are constantly stumbling over our own feet and failing. Father, we thank you that you are the rock. We thank you that you are sure when when life is unsure. We thank you that in the midst of all the changes and ups and downs, Lord, you are steadfast and you are true. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your faithful love to us. We thank you that we can throw and launch all of our cares onto you and stop pretending that we can get by. Lord, we can't. Please awaken each and every one of us this week, this day, that we are minute by minute dependent upon you. But that is the place of grace. That's not, a, that's not a bad place. That's the place of most grace, most blessing, most exaltation. To be in the lowliest position is to be in the heights with you because that's what Jesus did. And if our Lord, the, the Prince of Heaven, did that for us, how much more can we do that before you and before others? Oh, Lord, help us to come to grips, come to grips with the deadliness of pride and the loveliness of humility. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.